Hey, live from AC Second Fans. This is Chris Garretts of Nothing Rhymes with Garretts fame. I have another podcast called the Pietist Schoolman Podcast that runs on the Christian Humanist Network. As we start our kind of mini third season on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, we thought we would simulcast or a simul podcast on both networks. Enjoy. You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. This week on the Pietist Schoolman Podcast, the debut of our third season as we prepare to mark the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Welcome to the Pietist Schoolman Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Garretts, joined again by my Bethel University colleague and frequent podcast collaborator, Sam Mulberry, who will be our producer on this third season of the Pietist Schoolman Podcast. On the first two seasons of it, we looked at books about pietism. Season one was a kind of sequel to the Pietist Vision of Christian Higher Education, which I edited in 2015 for InterVarsity Press. And then season two was basically the first draft of the book that came out earlier this month, also from IVP. It was called The Pietist Option, Hope for the Renewal of Christianity, which I co-wrote with Mark Mark Patty. So I hadn't really planned on a third season, Sam. I think I actually, like, told people, well, we're kind of on hiatus. And then I got an email that kind of changed my mind. And, And so this is kind of a snap season we're putting together on the fly, knowing that October 31st, 2017 is kind of a big deal. That's right. We have a deadline we need to hit, right? <laughs> so what we're going to do is kind of straddle that big anniversary of, of Martin Luther's 95 Theses. And what, what prompted this is with that anniversary looming, I've taught a couple of adult Sunday school classes on Reformation history and how this anniversary is is significant for us. So I did like a four-week class back in June, and then uh, this fall I'm in the middle of a six-week class at a Baptist church here in town. And my mom actually happened to be in town, came to the first one, and she went back home to Virginia and, and had lunch with a friend who said, oh, that'd be great, can they podcast this? And mom passed that on, and at first I kind of dismissed, like, I don't really know if we have anything. And then I thought, like, you know, I bet that Sam and I... Are you telling me Elaine Gertz was pitching a podcast? She did, Elaine, yes. Wow. She's, does she get an executive producer? I think so, she has to. Uh, Let's have the lawyers work on that. Um, so I thought, you know, Sam and I are not really experts on the Reformation. You know, I, I do European history, and I've, I've taught our 300-level Reformation class long ago. It's not really my field. But the two of us do teach the Reformation an awful lot in, uh, of course, we've mentioned, at least last season, uh, Christianity and Western Culture, which is a first-year kind of gen ed, multidisciplinary, but church history course. So we both have given lectures about the context of the Reformation, the late Middle Ages, different Reformation. We've we've thought a lot about this. And so not as experts, but as teachers, we thought we would maybe do six or seven episodes to kind of help people think through some of the history of the Reformation, its meaning for us here in the 21st century. But also, like, we're going to start today actually not with history, but with memory. How, How do we remember the Reformation? Why do we? Remember the Reformation. So, with all those <laughs> caveats in mind, let's let's start season number three and ask uh, how and maybe why do we remember the Reformation? Now, one thing I've done in this adult class that I'll continue for the podcast is uh, kind of spotlight a book that's out there. There have been tons of good books coming out in the last two years, prompted by the anniversary, and so each week we'll we'll focus on one. This first one comes from someone that I blog with at the Anxious Bench. His name is uh, Tal Howard, Thomas Albert Howard, teaches at Valparaiso University. 
University. And actually, I had a couple of books come out. One was an edited collection with Mark Knoll. And then uh, Tal's own book is called Remembering the Reformation, An Inquiry into the Meanings of Protestantism. It's a fairly short book. Uh, it's I won't say it's an easy read. I think it's you know a very learned, erudite kind of read. But it's a collection of essays about how the Reformation was remembered at different anniversaries. So I want to come back to that because hmm. it's kind of interesting to think, like in 1617, what did people make of the Reformation? And then 1817 looks very different. And I haven't actually gotten to the 20th century yet, so I'll skip that. But well, we'll come back to that. But he starts with just a, a, you know I think a good kind of table setting introduction that I'll that I'll read as to why this is an important thing to remember, and then we should think about how we remember more generally. So Tal writes, How does one commemorate a historical force of such complexity, diversity, and influence? Protestantism, it merits recalling, has not only been credited for restoring Christian truth or blame for church divisions, but has been regarded as a cause of modern liberalism, capitalism, religious wars, tolerance, democracy, individualism, subjectivism, nationalism, pluralism, freedom of conscience, modern science, secularism, and so much else. And he goes on to give some examples of... So it's it's a very complicated kind of thing in a lot of respects to remember, but let's start like, why is it important that we pause at, at the 500th anniversary and, and remember something... From the past. Well, I think there's really two questions. There is is why do we why is this an important thing to remember? And then a separate question is why do we pause at a 500th anniversary? Because yes. I think those are uh, those are both important questions, yep. but I think they're different. So yep. which 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 direction should we go first? Well, I think let's come back to why do we? I mean, this specific one. Okay. I mean, like why do we why do we do anniversaries? Like why five? I mean, it's not just 500th. Like right. Cal's book notes 100th anniversaries, like 250th sure. anniversaries, and he also points out that like Luther's birth year of 1483 becomes another kind of milestone. So, like, 1883 was a big year in Germany because it was Luther's 400th birthday. I think I think anniversaries um, and centennials have great utility for because well, in a weird way, it's just because we like big round numbers yeah. and we and, and we're impressed by us by saying a century has passed. Because I mean, at one level. Is the Reformation any more significant in 2017 than it was in 2015? It's not any more significant, but it has utility because of the fact that we're drawn to these round number centennials, that it it's important because it causes us to pause. For some reason, it causes us to pause. Mm-hmm. It causes this history to be a story that we tell again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know... Uh, we we've been working within the uh, the centennial of the of the first world war uh, right. you and i and it's really it's really fantastic as people who are who think the first world war matters because all of a sudden now it becomes so much more accessible and i think this creates an opportunity for the reformation to become accessible uh, but I don't know. I mean, there's no magic to like. Well, 500 years means it's. I think the Reformation's going to take or something right. like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I always like to think of anniversaries, whether it's like an annual holiday. So, like, think about how Memorial Day functions in American memory, or Remembrance Day in a lot of other countries. I, I think of it, or or as like a, a much bigger kind of milestone. Like, I think of it as a kind of temporal roadblock. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's something that causes us to slow down or speed bump maybe like to, to not move quite so quickly through our lives and actually look back a little bit maybe linger our attention on the past a little bit and so it's been interesting in the age of social media to see how like hashtag reformation 500 or i think hashtag luther 2017 like is used to kind of draw attention so in the midst of scanning those feeds you can say hey wait a minute this is 
you know, there was a concert going on. Or my favorite one is the German Evangelical Church designed a robot that can bless you in 10 different languages <laughs> as a way to get people to think about what's the role of the clergy in the church. I mean, sure, so it's, sure. it's a kind of silly What thing. would Luther think of a blessing robot? What would Luther think of that? That's, uh, that's a good oh, question. That, that's what, what I found, find fascinating about anniversaries as well or centennials is um, it's is the anticipation like we've because we teach this course where where uh 1517 is an important year that we talk about like for probably the last five years we've been thinking like wow it's coming like what's coming i'm just bummed that october 31st does not fall on a monday or friday which are lecture days in this course so we're not not only that so this course is taught by some of us on mondays wednesdays thursdays and fridays (laughs) and this falls on a only day that doesn't work um it is fine this i mean like we've had commemoration in that course before do you remember the 95 theses about cwc yes that was not really it was not a commemorate, but it was on October 31st, and they used the form of that to complain about the course, yes. which, which is a kind of commemoration. And, and so, like, one thing, if I can move us along just a little bit here, is, is to think about how we remember, and maybe even ask, like, I mean, is there a way that Christians ought to remember? I mean, I think it's it's a pretty human thing, you know, we, we you know maybe in the breach more than the observance, to, to try to commemorate things and events and people. But is there a Christian theology of memory? Like, should Christians remember the Reformation differently than um, you know people of another religion would remember an equally important event in their religious history? Sure, it, I think it's interesting, and there's lots on this. But but it's interesting to think about. Um, so I was meeting with a student yesterday, and we had we've just covered uh, medieval religion, medieval theology. So. Um, she came in and just had lots of questions about like, cause you know, we talked about sacraments and grace and I was, and I was trying to like kind of parse out like, okay, here's how a medieval person thought about these things and how they thought about salvation and purgatory and these types of things. And, and it was interesting cause she was very interested in it. And I kept saying, and this is, it's, this is important, but it's also important because in like a week or two, we're going to be talking about the reformation and we can't understand the reformation without understanding this other piece that comes before it. And so there's, and in the same way, we can't understand where we are now mm-hmm. without understanding, like, like, without understanding the Reformation, without under- especially as Christians, to say, like, well, why does my church look the way it does? Why doesn't it look like the same church that Aquinas was right. was writing about? Um, and and that's what I found interesting in the student is as she was looking at the medieval church, she was she was drawn to it, and she was drawn to some of the people. So, like when we talked about Francis of Assisi, she was like. That guy, huh. that guy's onto something. Okay. It also seems really hard. But she was saying, "But why doesn't this look like the Christianity of my church?" And it was like, "Well, just wait. There's a stream of history that that we are currently swimming in, and in this course, we're covering that. We're just not to that point yet." But I said, "Hold on, because we're gonna hit a point where you're gonna say, oh, that's why we do this thing in church because it ha- it has these roots that tie back there.'" And it's a really a a seminal moment for shaping. I mean. The, the church of 1517 and, and the, the decades that follow it is not the same as the church of 2017, mm-hmm. but I think you, there's a lot of DNA that you can clearly see, a lot of Yeah, lines. I mean, at least for our students, it's going to seem more familiar than the church of even 1417, let alone right. 1117 or 617, right? I mean, I, I think that's really important is that Christianity is uh, it, it is a religion of history. It is embodied. It's incarnate. 
in the past and is subject to change over time. And so partly it's just, I think, a kind of basic Christian consciousness about what it means to participate in the church is like we don't reinvent ourselves every single time we gather for worship. We are people of tradition and custom, even though the Reformation will, in some ways will get us to feel like we can discard those traditions and customs. And, you know, that's part of the complexity of it. I mean, I think the other thing here is just a sense like it reminds us that the community of the body of Christ it's not bounded by national boundaries, but it's also not bounded by temporal boundaries. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, a really important moment is we teach the Middle Ages in this class is to suggest that medievals maybe have a keener sense than we do that the veil between death and life is awfully thin. It's mm-hmm. awfully permeable. And I think you know, partly as a consequence of the Reformation and, and rejecting veneration of the saints, for example, and, and um, some of the indulgence relic traffic. I think we've lost some of that sense. And so, like, partly what commemoration does is it's it's a little flicker of recognition that we're part of something that stretches back 2,000 years. In the same way, like, I mean, at least for me, that's what communion or Eucharist does. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's this amazing moment where you're engaging in remembrance, but it's also it's the moment when the present-day community gathers, but also is an anticipation of the future when we all gather, you know, before God. Right, and, and in this course, we start we start the course with the with the, the theme verse for the course, which is Hebrews uh, eleven through twelve one, and which is this kind of litany of the faith through the Hebrew scriptures, um, and it talks about this this image of this cloud of witnesses and part of what having. <laughs> Um, Christian memory is, or, or, or recapturing this story is understanding, you know, in, in the, in sort of in the words of scripture, who, who are in that cloud of witnesses and, and, uh, you know, the, those Reformation figures are, are a deep part of that. And, you know, what, what you're getting at is, is how much can we communicate with that? Yeah. You know, you know and that, yeah. and that's a shift that happens for sure. Yeah. And I think that then suggests that there's something about commemorative that is uh, formative. I mean, it, it's, it's meant to shape, I mean, the, the language of Hebrews 12, one, it cultivates a kind of perseverance. Um, I mean, it also points us back to Christ. And so, I mean, that that probably ought to be central to this, mm-hmm. that we do this not as a way to venerate and adore you know, Christians of the past, but in some ways it helps us, you know, understand yet again what our mission is as the body of Christ. I mean, the other thing that strikes me about how the Bible talks about remembrance or commemoration, especially in the Old Testament, is that it's connected to action, I think remembrance probably seems like a very it's kind of an intellectual thing to do. Mm-hmm. It can be kind of passive, um, but uh, like especially the book of Deuteronomy has all these instructions of do this, and then like semicolon remember that you were slaves in Egypt once. So like you know, keep the Passover is a very obvious way of doing that. Um, keep the, like there's a festival of booths where you're supposed to live in a temporary shelter for a certain period of time to remember what it was like to live in exile in Sinai. But also, like, there's uh, language about every seventh year to free certain slaves. Remember that you were slaves yourself. I mean, there's a way in which the action is connected to the remembering. And so I don't know that we do that quite so well. But, like, I've, I've thought, like, in the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, what would be the do this, semicolon, remember that you were people of the Reformation? And that could be. Yeah, you know, I think one thing we will talk about maybe is like this is an occasion for lament. This is maybe an occasion for ecumenical reunion. Remember that you are people of the Reformation, right? You know, and I think I think the other thing is that you you think about the Reformation is a, is uh, is a very human story, right? Mm-hmm. There that there that this is this is, but the but the whole story of the faith is a very human story. I mean, it's interesting to think about the uh, the. Christian scriptures, so the Hebrew scriptures and the, and the, the new and the New Testament, the Christian scriptures, and how different they are than sacred texts in other religions, mm-hmm. because 
they are they are a story of a people, right? <laughs> and, and and so in the same way, like to think and 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 it's not always a straight line. The story of I mean, I always talk with students about when I read the Old Testament, how frustrated I get because it's like. You know what you're supposed to do. You have the law, and you don't do it, and you're warned about not. To, but then you look at our own lives and our own histories, and it's the same thing. And so, so to so to then take that into the Reformation and say, I mean, you you bring up this word lament, and I think this is a question we're both very interested in, which is that the Reformation is sometimes can be viewed as a story of progress, but it's also a story of loss. And I think that's. That's the human element in this as well. So why don't we turn to that? So I've, I've mentioned this book by Tal Howard, Remembering the Reformation. And what's really fascinating that I occasionally think, like I've thought about this with World War One. like what it looked like to mark the 50th anniversary of World War One in the 60s. Or, you know, there was a 25th anniversary in 1939. World War Two started on the 25th anniversary of World War One, but uh, I hadn't really thought like what it looked like in 1617 or Luther's birthday in 1883. So just a couple of examples that I'll pull out from Tal's book. Um, in 1617 and 1717, both are fundamentally shaped by what he calls confessionalism or confessionalization. You know, these are the times of hardening doctrinal lines, not just between Catholics and Protestants, but between different Protestant communions, between Lutheran or Evangelical in Europe, they call it, and the Reform groups. And 1617, of course, is a year before the Thirty Years' War, when these lines harden and then erupt into actual violent conflict. And so a lot of what's done in those years is use that to tell your particular story, and it's really a story of separation from um, a less Christian kind of wayward branch of the family, or even you know, a group of, of heretics. And at the same time, you know, as someone who studies pietism, it was interesting that tell mentioned that pietists take a different version of this. They tend generally not to make as much about doctrinal difference. And so in 1717, uh, August Hermann Franke, the, the great pietist pastor in Halle, his Luther, uh, his speech is less about let's remember Luther and celebrate his break with the church. It's more like what is the kind of spiritual ethos of the Reformation? What is the revival that it calls us to personally and, and as a church? And that, he says, that actually carries through into the 19th century. I mean, the kind of pietist strand will do much less with, let's talk about why sola gratia is different from medieval works righteousness, and much more about the spirit that animates the Reformation. Mm. Um, and then, what's really fascinating, and it kind of gets at something we should talk about, which is how we don't remember in the abstract, we remember in context, you know, in conversation with present-day events. 1817, you get some of the same things, um, but partly because in 1817, the king of Prussia tries to force a union of the two Protestant branches, and hmm. not everyone responds to that. But obviously, the other big thing that's happening is this is the wake of the French Revolution, the Enlightenment, and uh, the wars of Napoleon and the Congress of Vienna. And so a lot of it, for people like Friedrich Schleiermacher, this is celebrating the Reformation as the birth of modernity. Hmm. And so you start getting more language about this is the triumph of the individual conscience. Uh, he didn't go too in-depth, but Tell points out this is actually... When you start getting the kind of mythical story of Luther hammering 95 theses to a door on the church, that actually, you don't see images of that until 1817, and then it's everywhere. Interesting. And he didn't exegete that too much, but it did make me wonder if it's that kind of defiant individual breaking with tradition, which would make sense in that context. The other thing is that in 1817, a group of German university students gathers at the Wartburg, at the castle where Luther was in custody, and they plan German national unity which is a subversive act in 1817. And two years later, there's actually a law passed against these organizations. So the way they start to make use of it is this is a German event. 
you know, Luther is a German figure re- revolting against Italian tyranny, right? And, and so the way we commemorate this is what can we do to unify the Germans, not on religious grounds in any sense. And, and this kind of carries through. In 1883, the 400th anniversary of Luther's, of Luther's birth, um, Germany has been reunified 12 years earlier. And the king of Prussia, Wilhelm I, who's the German emperor, that's how he celebrates it. Like, this is an important moment for all Protestants, but for all Germans is, mm. as well. So hmm. it makes me wonder, like, in 2017, what's shaping us as we are going to remember this? What's, and what will that say about us exactly. 200 years from now? And it's hard. I mean, it's very hard for us to kind of step out of our own time and kind of be conscious of what you know, invisible forces. Are. But you're probably more tapped into this. Like, like, what is going on? Yeah. So, I mean, a few things I've, I mean, I mentioned. Because I don't know if the hashtag is going to make it into the book 200 years from now. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see. Um, I mean, I would think... In some respects, the big theme is one of, is this a point of reunion? So, like, a a really important event on October 31st, 2016, kind of kicking off this year-long commemoration, uh, happened in Luden, Sweden. And there is a joint mass held between the, um, the head of the Lutheran World Federation, who's a Jordanian bishop, and Pope Francis. It was a conscious attempt to bring together in worship, at least, these two separated brethren, right? And and they have a prayer for lament. So I'm I'm teaching a class on Christians in unity right now, and we did a little unit on the Reformation, and this is where I started. And it was a prayer of lamenting how religious difference was was used for, like, political purposes and um, how it it deepened into prejudice and bias and mutual hatred. And so it it was a prayer of lament, but also a prayer of hope that somehow this would be a moment where we could... Um, recognize those differences and somehow transcend them. And that's building on, you know, in this country, like 20, 30 years of, uh, of um, Protestants and Catholics working together at different levels. I mean, it's, there's also 50 plus years after Vatican II is an important break in that respect. And so, like, that's one way. The other way I've seen it is, well, I think a couple weeks ago, a document came to all, I, I should have written down, that it was called, like, a Reformed Catholic Confession. And it was meant to be a statement of mere Protestantism, that all sorts of Lutheran and Calvinist and Anglican and Baptist and Evangelical and other other Protestant leaders signed, including the president of our university, the past president of our university, a whole bunch of other figures. And it was consciously set up to be Catholic with a lowercase c, like a universal Protestant statement. So that was a different kind of like ecumenical, like sure. we're not going to, like Catholics were not invited to that. The Orthodox were not invited. But it was a recognition that once you know the 95 theses cracked the door open, at least all sorts of other fissures as as well. And so there, there was a conscious attempt to say, can we actually use this as a moment to come together, at least as Protestants, and talk about our differences about baptism and communion and, and everything else? And I don't know, just generally it feels like there, there are a fair number of like 2017 being the year of um, statements, mm-hmm. or like of 95 theses-like things. Sure. Like, I mean, the one that got a lot of discussion earlier this fall was the Nashville statement about sexuality, marriage, gender identity, gender roles. That, that was fairly controversial. I don't think it brought any unity. But it was a kind of like 95 Theses-like statement of we will defiantly stand our ground on this. And and um, I just read today it's being added to the list of confessional documents at Southern Baptist Seminary. Hmm. Of This is going to define what it means. Do you think... Uh, do you think in in 2017 in America, this is going to break through into, I guess, popular culture is the only word that I, I mean, is this, other, I mean, I can imagine on, 
on October 29th on CBS Sunday morning. They'll <laughs> they'll do a piece on it or something. Yeah. But like, because um, I am that old that this is what we want. But like, but like, is it, are there other? Is this going to be meaningful? I don't think so. Okay. I mean, I, I think like. In Europe, it's different, and partly because like uh, German towns, if they have any, if they're a Lutherstadt like Wittenberg, or if they have any connection, like they're using this as a tourism sure, driver. Sure. I think we even saw a little bit of that last year Absolutely. when we were in Munich, and um, you know, I think people have probably heard of the Playmobil toy, the little Luther doll that's right. their bestseller. I mean, like I think it's a pretty big deal in Germany, maybe Europe more broadly, and I do wonder beyond you know, certain, um, you know. If you have a certain level of devotion to Christianity, maybe in this country, it's and especially Protestants. Beyond that, like I've seen a PBS special about it. I don't feel like I've seen a lot else where you okay. see it breaking into the culture. Because like, I bring that up only because like it, the case can be made, and it sounds like like some folks make it that like that this really is a uh, in a really seminal moment, not just in the history of Christianity, but in the history of the West. That like yeah, like this. Right. You to understand the world we live in, you need to understand this moment. Um, so it's sort of interesting that the 500th anniversary of that. I mean, maybe is that is that 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 uh, it's we're we're too ahistorical or it's too religious to to break through. Yes, and yes, and maybe we're not quite as comfortable with modernity in the West. I mean, like I can see okay. how that's a difference from 1817, right? At least at the elite level, there there'd be a lot of whatever your religious feelings. Like it's this. It's this mark between. It's this break between medieval or ancient and the modern. And I mean, I, so I wonder, even at like the elite kind of, I mean, like, are academics choosing this as a moment to then reflect right. on modernity and post-modernity? I don't. I mean, I feel like I read a lot of kind of you know public intellectual sorts of things and academic discussions. I don't feel like I've actually seen that much of it. And you know, listeners, write in if you're seeing other ways this is done. I mean, the other thing it points to is. Yeah, I mean, like what? What at all in the American nation do we rally around together? Sure. Is something like we. So I mean, I don't see our leaders using this as any kind of moment. I mean, I, so I haven't read the 20th century chapter from Tal's book, and so I'm sure he addresses this. But he does say a little bit about American responses, especially in 1883, and. Um, it's a kind of unifying Protestant moment, but that's at a time when there is a kind of establishment, not officially, but there is a kind of Protestant Christendom in America where, you know, leading universities are still staffed by Protestant clergy and they're invited to the White House. I mean, there's a level to which Protestantism is the established religion of 1883 America. And I think of nothing else, like we don't see that. I mean, if, if you need yet another reminder, we're living in a kind of post-Christendom, if not post-Christian America, like just think about, how salient is this? How how much do you see this showing up in the mainstream media? How much do you see this showing up, um, you know, beyond religious education anywhere else? So I think that's a really interesting question. The kind of other question I've asked as I've taught this is, like, you know, I appreciate it because it gives me some work. Like, mm -hmm. it gives us an excuse to do this. Like, I also feel like there's the artifice of saying, let's pick this one kind of apocryphal-ish sort of date, October 31st, 1517, and make a big deal. Yeah, probably we just we have to pick a date sure. to do it, right? I mean, like, we could quibble even about World War One if we wanted to. Like, that, that gets ridiculous after a while. But I think the danger here that I've, I've tried to get people to think about is what do you lose if you think so much like, okay, on October 31st, 1517, we're, we're building towards that. That's going to be a big deal. I'm sure most Protestant churches will do something on Reformation Sunday about it. What's lost if that's the approach you take to commemoration? 
you know, in a certain sense, it's like, well, what happens then on November 1st, 2017? That, that's a danger. But I think where memory then starts to confuse history is it does make us think about the Reformation as like an event or maybe like two events. You fold like the Dia de Worms in mm-hmm. or something else. Um, and, and here's the difference between memory and history. Um, like history um, always, first of all, wants to make this much more complicated Right, um, but history also. I read this quotation from a European historian named Tony Jutt with my modern Europe students a lot, and I think it works here too. Um, so, at the end of his book, Post War, as he thinks about how Europeans remember World War II, he says there's a difference between memory, which is kind of self-reinforcing, and like this might shift every hundred years, but like there is a kind of like narrative we want to tell ourselves, and then history he calls an act of disenchantment, and the job of the historian is actually to strip away some of the um, false imagination by which memory reconstructs the past. Hmm. And so like, partly I like, well, I feel like my job is to kind of, you know, start with the story and then complicate it. You know, start with the Protestant audience of why do you want to celebrate this so much? And then last week in class, it was, now here are some of the paradoxes. Right, the so what's the, what's the most important complication for, I mean, let, let's, let's say the posting of the 95, yeah. like, like for, for the October 31st, 1517, what's the most important complication? Well, I'll give you two, and they're kind of, they'll, they'll preview a couple of directions we're going. So the first I won't say a lot about because we'll come back to it in, in two weeks, but there's this great book by Carlos Ayer, who's a Reformation scholar at Yale, um, a Catholic historian, Cuban emigre. His book is, is called Reformations, first, plural. Right, so like maybe we shouldn't think of this solely as Luther's Reformation. Um, and its period is 1450 to 1650. Hmm. And so I, I think this is the first thing to recognize is um, the Reformation doesn't start with Luther. Right, and If you see it in a certain light, the Reformation is going on with the work of Erasmus. It's going on with uh, what we would think of as like Catholic Bible editing and translation, the work of Christian humanism, um, reforms to the papacy, the conciliar movement, monastic observance. Like what I always, what I always like to point out is, you know, the word Reformation has been around for at least a hundred years. It's in the documents of the Council of Constance in 1414, and so Luther you know, is proceeding in a line that goes back quite a while. So that's the first complication, and that's important because we'll we'll spend a week talking about the Catholic Reformation, and that's you know that that's something that begins before Luther continues after him. I think the second thing is it it can shape the meaning you make of it. And so I, one thing I point out in this adult class, the last time I taught this group, I used Mark Knoll's book, Turning Points, which suggests that maybe a way to study this big story of the church is you pick out certain events where it seemed like there was a fork in the road or like clearly there was a decisive kind of moment. And not surprisingly, he spends a lot of time on the Reformation. You know, he talks about the Jesuits. He talks about the Church of England and Henry VIII. But he has a Luther moment. But he doesn't pick 1517. He picks 1521. And to him, the turning point is not actually this 95 Theses being posted. It's what happens after that, the debate that emerges and the polarization culminating then in Luther coming before this imperial council and being confronted and uh, giving this very famous statement that he refuses to recant, his conscience is captive to the word of God. And then Noel does an interesting thing where he says, if you're Protestant, what, what you see, it's a turning point because Protestantism has just been born. Mm-hmm. This notion of there is no higher authority than the Bible, that that's where God speaks not only most clearly to us and everything else has to bend the knee to the Bible. And whatever else Protestantism is, it's, it's that. 
But he then goes on to say, what we don't remember is that the Catholic official, a guy named Johannes Eck, who is interrogating Luther, has a response, like on the moment where he says, but wait, if you do that, there will be nothing settled about Christianity. And in fact, are you telling me that every moment every Christian needs to defend their conscience in line with Scripture? Does tradition have no power? Do councils have no power? And so Noel says, seeing another light, that's actually the meaning, is that nothing is settled anymore. And you can kind of see how the division sure, would fracture out. And so huh. so that, I mean, that's the kind of, it's a teachable kind of problem. I mean, what, what does it mean that we choose 1517 as the moment where we erect this kind of speed bump and say, let's slow down and look at this? Would it be any different if we looked at 1521? And if we look at 1521, honestly. I mean, because right. because we do look at 1521, do, but yeah. 1521, as you point out, stand ends with here I stand, I can do no other, and there, and that's the end of it. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's, that's I mean, that's I think, really where we're headed with this podcast series is like, you know, now that we've kind of established, let's, we'll actually start in the Middle Ages for a couple of weeks and think about what's the context for all this, how do Protestants then remember the medieval church? And maybe next week we'll talk about why is there some wisdom there that we should um, not be so quick to dispense with. And then we'll get into the Luther story. But then the next move we have to make, is, well, where do we go from Luther? Whether it's 1517 or 1521, that's not the end of the story of the Protestant Reformation because there will be splits within Luther's followers. And there are other Reformations happening in other parts of Europe that overlap and coincide but conflict with Luther's. And... And then the last thing I think we ought to talk about is like maybe the, the upshot of this is a Reformation is it's an ongoing process. It's not a discrete historical event. It's something the church is always doing. And so what does it look for us to be reformed and always reforming as we mark this 500th anniversary? So we hope you enjoy this as we as we continue forward. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Sam, thanks for, for playing along with Anytime. us. Anytime. Okay. So thanks for joining us as we discuss the commemoration of the Reformation. Join us next time as Sam and I try to reconsider the medieval Christianity that Martin Luther tried to reform. If you like what you heard, you can read more of my musings on Christianity, history, and education several times a week at the Pietist Schoolman and every Tuesday at the Anxious Bench on the Patheos Evangelical Channel. My newest book, The Pietist Option, is available now from Amazon and other major retailers. Pietist Schoolman Podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. This episode was engineered and produced by Sam Albrey. I'm Chris Garretts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>